This evening we talked a little bit about family, and during that lesson uh, we talked for a minute about the family of Jesus. And one thing I thought is kind of interesting is to look at what we can see about the family of Jesus as it pops up throughout the New Testament. There really isn't a major emphasis on his family life in the Gospels, and uh, certainly not in the letters of Paul, but there are glimpses of uh, information that appear here and there throughout the letters of Paul or throughout uh, some other letters in the New Testament or throughout the Gospels that I think can help us paint an interesting picture of uh, the the family dynamic that Jesus had, particularly with his brothers, and then uh, uh, look at what... uh, what continued, how that story continued uh, after the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Uh, so to begin, let's begin our uh, Bible study by turning to the book of Jude, chapter 1. There's only one chapter, but go to Jude 1. <clears throat> uh, Jude chapter 1. And uh, I want to read just a couple of interesting verses uh, in this book. We'll start with the first verse. It begins by saying, Jude, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Okay, so that right there is kind of an interesting beginning by calling himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 4. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's a slave of Jesus Christ, and our only master and Lord is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So remember the words that come from the apostles, because the apostles came from our Lord, who is Jesus Christ. Remember, he's our only master and Lord, and he's the one to whom Jude is saying that he is a slave. If you look a little bit further, look at verses 20 and 21. This is fascinating, because in this you're going to get uh, a Trinitarian idea that's spelled out. You're going to have reference to the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and the Son, Jesus Christ, all working in unison in the lives of the Christians. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up uh, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You have praying in the Spirit, you have the love of God, and you have the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look uh, finally at the last verse, verse 20, we'll do verse 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of the glory, of his uh, glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen. All right, so it's one chapter, and we've looked at like five different sections of it, um, each of which has a reference to Jesus. And they all uh, say something pretty remarkable about him, whether it is uh, joining him with the Trinity or with the, Holy, the Father uh, and, and the Holy Spirit, or it is the continual reference to him as the Lord and our Master. It's a reference to Jude as being his slave or his bondservant. It is the fact that uh, all glory belongs to God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you look at all those things, we're, we're waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus at his, at his coming. Now, the reason that we read all of those passages and the reason that they're really fascinating is because the author of this book, Jude, is believed to be the brother of Jesus. So think for a moment, if any of you have any siblings, this will be quite an exercise. What would it take for you to willingly call yourself a slave of your only Lord and master, your older brother? Um, I have two older brothers. I'm telling you, it wouldn't happen easily. Um, they might be okay guys in some, in some respects, but uh, it's a far cry from writing anything like this. Something incredible has happened for Jude to view his brother this way, uh, to be waiting for uh, the coming of the great mercy of my brother when he comes unto eternal life. And you think, that's a strange thing to say, you know, or I can only give glory to God through my brother. <laughs> I mean, that's something here monumental has happened in the life of, of Jude for him to view his brother that way. And you can see the same thing in the writings of James. Uh, look over at the, the book of James. James is also written by uh, a brother of Jesus. And he's going to use some of the same type of language that is, it's really astounding. Like, even just from a historical standpoint, to consider writing about your brother using this type of language. Your brother who you, like, you saw him as he was, you know, a kid. You argued with him over who was going to get the last I don't know what they ate, uh, bread, you know, but like, like these types of, of things that it would come up, you know, what the things that you would see as, as a sibling, they have come to believe that the person who they saw sleep in their house and the person who they saw every day, the person they saw as he went through his awkward teen years and all of those things, they've come to write about him in language like chapter two and verse one, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Our glorious Lord, the Messiah, Jesus. Um, that's quite a thing to say about your brother. And again, he starts it in verse 1, the same way Jude does with uh, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of, of God and of Jesus. And even just that pairing right there of God and my brother are the ones that I serve is is an elevation of a brother beyond anything that, that you would uh, ever expect or, or uh, imagine. And so you see all of these things in here, and you just have to think, what is it that would make you say that about your brother? Um, the Apostle Paul is going to make a couple of references to the brothers of Jesus um, throughout uh, his letters. You'll see the occasional reference pop up. Um, one of them is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is writing about some of the, uh, the liberties that he has denied himself in his service to the, the church at Corinth and in his service to the kingdom of God as a whole. And one of those that he mentions is a marriage. And the idea that he's trying to promote is there's a controversy about eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he's trying to encourage Christians, even if you're okay with it, be willing to take less than you deserve if you're going to help your brother by doing so. And he gives a couple of examples of way that he has done that. There are things that he could do. There are rights he could demand. But even though he could, 
He denies himself those things. Um, he, he does accept payment for ministry, but not from the church at Corinth uh, sp- specifically. And that might be an indictment on their maturity level as, as Christians. Uh, but he refuses to take payment from them, even though he could. Um, he uh, refuses to... Uh, there are certain foods that he does not eat and drink, even though he believes he could. But one thing that's interesting is he mentions marriage. He, he is single, and he lives his life as a, in, as a celibacy uh, and as a single man uh, because he thinks that that opens up more ministry opportunities for him. He mentions in chapter 7 that when someone's married and has a family, there are times you have to focus on your family. And when you're doing that, you're not able to go out and put your life in danger and travel and, and do some of the ministry things that he does. So one way it ties you to this earth and the other way it can tie you to God. And so he chooses to tie himself to God and into the ministry. And so because of that, he's given up certain rights. One of them is marriage. And when he mentions that in verse five, he says, do we not have the right to take on a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do Barnabas and I not have, the, uh, uh, not have a right to refrain from working? And notice, like, as he's giving this list, just that one little phrase that he, does he not have the right to take on a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So apparently within the early church, uh, there were people who were serving the kingdom, and some of them are called the brothers of the Lord. Um, now, one thing that's interesting about uh, a couple of these references is there is a belief um, by, by some that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, remained a perpetual virgin, and that means she was a virgin her entire life. So she only had one child, uh, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, and she never uh, had relations with a man. Um, the text does not say that. In fact, there are quite a few passages that indicate that Jesus had brothers. One of the ways that people would say, well, this doesn't mean brothers, as it just means like a You know how Christians sometimes call them each other brother, like your brother or sisters in Christ? Uh, This is just saying the brothers of the Lord, like his fellow brothers. The problem with that is um, all of the people mentioned there would be brothers of the Lord. The apostles would certainly be brothers of the Lord if it's just used in the general sense of, of, you know, fellow believers. And Cephas would be. So there's something distinct about this group. And what's distinct about them is that they're actually brothers of the Lord. Uh, I think you take it in in the literal way of them being his actual brothers. And we know two of them uh, that wrote letters of the New Testament who were faithful Christians, one named Jude or Judas, and we'll talk about that in a second, and the other one named uh, Joseph or or Jacob. Um, But what we, or sorry, not Joseph, uh, James or Jacob. Um, But so here we have uh, that Jesus did have brothers, that they were early Christians, and that they did serve in ministry, and that they were married, which is kind of interesting. Um, but another reference is in Galatians chapter 1. This is another moment where you see his brothers pop up in the story, um, particularly one of them. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul is defending his apostleship, and he's defending his uh, gospel message. There was controversy about what the limits of the gospel were and what the ramifications of Paul's preaching the gospel to Gentiles meant for fellow Jews. And Paul is wanting to demonstrate that the gospel that he preaches, he did not come up with it on his own, and he's not just uh, relaying that which he heard from other men. 
Rather, the gospel that he preaches comes directly from Jesus Christ. And he lays out a kind of a timeline of events so that people can see where he got his gospel from. Um, if, you know, he, he'll mention that uh, the gospel that he has, uh, it was revealed to him. Uh, he didn't receive it from men in verse 12, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so he wants to demonstrate that. And so he shows, you know, when he became a Christian, when Christ appeared to him, uh, some time that he spent studying. And then when he actually did meet with the other apostles. If you look at uh, verse 19, after saying he met with Cephas uh, three years uh, later, he says, I came up, in verse 19, I came up to see any of the, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then he goes on to continue writing. But right in there, he makes a reference to meeting someone in Jerusalem who's James, and he calls him the Lord's brother. Um, Interestingly, he does use the word apostle there, too. Uh, even though the who we usually think of as the 12 apostles would not have included James, the word apostle is used throughout the New Testament to sometimes include other people. And, uh, you know, sometimes people differentiate between, like, the, the capital A apostle, meaning, like, the 12 that were with Jesus, uh, and then just others who... The word has a general meaning of being sent, and so others who were apostles or sent in different ways, uh, but without you know it being necessarily one of the the twelve who uh, who Jesus uh, was with. But anyway, here we have just another in passing reference to the brother of Jesus. There's a lot that's interesting about this, I think. But one thing, uh, again, just from a historical standpoint, is there are not many, but there are some who not only do they deny the existence of God or the truth of Christianity, there are some out there who would deny even the existence of Jesus himself. They would think that he was just a myth or something like that. And uh, we have quite a few references to Jesus uh, throughout uh, certainly the Bible in, in early Christian records. We also have references to him in some Jewish records, and we also have some references to him in some Roman records, uh, uh, especially within the first 200 years of his life. He's mentioned quite a few times. Um, and so there's a lot of you know, argument you can go into there. But one of the arguments for the existence of the historical Jesus, is fast, which is fascinating, is the fact that he had brothers and people knew them. Uh, so one way you can know that Jesus lived is because if his brother lived, he had to live. You, you can't be the brother of someone who doesn't exist. And uh, a lot of the references to his brothers, they're not written in any sort of polemic or argumentative way in order to prove who Jesus was. They're just referenced in passing to help people know who you're talking about. And so there's a group of people who were just known as Jesus's brothers, and they were early Christians. And so the fact that his brothers existed is another of many lines of evidence that Jesus certainly existed. But uh, here you have another reference to the, the brothers of Jesus. As you keep looking at James, You'll see that he not only was a Christian in the early church, uh, he wrote a letter of the New Testament, but he was a rather prominent Christian. In fact, uh, Paul describes him in Galatians chapter 2 as someone who has... uh, had the reputation of being a pillar among the early church. And he was a leader in the church at, uh, in Jerusalem, which if you're thinking about uh, now that Jesus has been crucified and he has raised, but he's ascended to the Father and he's not on earth anymore, and you're looking to people who might have some credibility with uh, teaching the early Christians, it'd be fascinating, especially if you're years removed from Jesus, if you never met him, to be able to go talk to his brother about him. You, you could imagine how that would 
give him a ready audience for people who love Jesus and want to follow him to have his brother right there. Uh, And so it makes sense that he would become someone who uh, gained an audience. He was someone who a lot of people wanted to listen to. I bet he got a lot of questions uh, about Jesus. I know I would ask a lot of questions uh, about uh, what he was like and what types of things he emphasized. And and James, no doubt, uh, expounded upon those things. And James, no doubt, doubt, uh, took his, his role in the early church very seriously. But you can see him pop up several times in, for example, the book of Acts, where you see him taking a leadership role at the church in Jerusalem. One of those is in Acts 15. In Acts 15, there's this big, it's called the Jerusalem Council. It's a big uh, meeting together of early Christian thinkers and leaders to discuss some difficult issues that are arising in the church. Namely, uh, now that we have Gentiles entering the church, what are we supposed to, like, what are the, the um, what are we going to have to, bind upon them in order for them to become fully accepted members of of our churches and and participants uh, in the kingdom of God. Um, They put their faith in Jesus. That's great, and we can accept them as Christians. But um, there are still certain uh, purity regulations and things like that that matter. Um, And and so sometimes, uh, you know, a Jew might consider a Gentile to be a Christian, but there's still a question about should I enter the home and eat with someone who's uncircumcised? Uh, should, I, uh, should I ignore all the purity laws? Should, should I? I mean, one thing that's interesting uh, that we should know about early Christianity is it was a Jewish movement. And so when the church first started, you still have Christians who are eating kosher. You still have Christians who are obeying the food and purity laws. You still have Christians who are going to the temple and sacrificing. Like, all of that stuff is taking place. But the difference is those Christians have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But that doesn't mean they stopped being Jews. And so in Acts chapter 21, for example, Paul goes to uh, the, the temple, or goes to Jerusalem, and he meets with the church there. And James explicitly says, there are many believers here who are still zealous for the law. And they're concerned that you're teaching uh, Jews outside of Jerusalem not to pay attention to Moses. And so in order to clear the air, what we think it would be good for you to do is go show that you do take seriously the law of Moses and go to the temple and offer some sacrifice. That's, That's an interesting request. And you might think Paul would say, well, no, because we have the sacrifice of Jesus and, and that would be unnecessary to do. But no, Paul does it. Paul goes to the temple and he offers sacrifice uh, through, the, through the priesthood that's there. Uh, Paul, I don't think, believes that Jews have to give all of that up to become Christians. Uh, and so Paul, I don't think he thinks you bind it on people and you certainly don't bind it on Gentiles. He believes that, that faith in Christ is, is the only boundary marker they need to be accepted into the faith. But all of these issues are issues the early church is having to grapple with. So Acts 15 is a meeting they get together to grapple with it. And Peter is going to describe um, the the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile. Because Peter is actually the first one to convert a Gentile, uh, a full-fledged Gentile, to the faith. And he sees that the Holy Spirit of God falls upon an unclean Gentile without circumcision and without obedience to the law of Moses simply by hearing the message of the gospel. And so then he goes and immediately has him baptized uh, to become part of the faith. But he, he asked the question, who can forbid water to someone who received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And so the Holy Spirit was 
a clear argument in Peter's mind for the acceptance of Gentiles without obedience to the law of Moses. Um, then Paul and, and Barnabas, they give their uh, stories about things that happened on their missionary journeys and how they, the Holy Spirit was truly working uh, through them into the Gentile ministry without them becoming obedient to the gospel. And so we know that uh, you know Peter and Paul were big names in the early church. But the third one who gets up to speak and who makes this argument is James, the brother of the Lord. And he uh, actually uses scripture. He uses the end of the book of Amos to talk about the fact that God has always desired for even Gentiles to be called by his name and to be into one, his, his family. And so, um, and so James makes his argument and then they discuss these matters and they write a letter saying basically we're not going to bind uh, the ordinances of the law on Gentiles in order for them to become Christians. But that discussion reveals who some of the big names were in early Christianity. And one of them was James, the brother of Jesus. Um, And then in Acts 21, when Paul does go and he meets with the elders and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, we're told that James, the brother of the Lord, is there and the other elders are there. And uh, and then they they discuss matters further. In Galatians chapter 2, there is a dispute between Paul and Peter, because Peter seems to be willing to admit that Gentiles are Christians, and he's even willing to eat with Gentiles until his brothers from James come. That's from the church in Jerusalem. And he just says they came from James. So James is such a prominent member in Jerusalem that when you talk about people from visiting from Jerusalem to Antioch, you would just say, oh, they came from James. And, uh, and they arrive there. And when they arrive, Peter's no longer eating with Gentiles. And Paul sees this and he's like, wait a minute. So you, you'll eat with Gentiles without, you know, James and, and his uh, crew around. Uh, but as soon as they get there, you're afraid to do it. And he calls him out on as being a hypocrite. And he says, you're no longer even standing, uh, walking in the truth of the gospel anymore. And, uh, and so then the book of Galatians is largely written to combat those ideas. But even there, that puts Paul in a really difficult position, having to stand against Peter, and uh, we can assume James. If, if it's James, the people who are coming from him are the ones who are pressuring Peter to do this, then Paul all of a sudden has a disagreement not only with Peter, but perhaps with even the brother of Jesus. That's a... I would be intimidated to be in the position of having to say, no, Jesus's brother, you got it all wrong. And no, Peter, who was with Jesus for a lot longer than I was, you got it all wrong. But Paul is so convinced of the message that he received by revelation of Jesus that he will actually make that stand. So that in and of itself is a really interesting scene of inner church conflict in, in the early days uh, and, uh, and the boldness of Paul to stand up against the those who were pillars in the church and to say no this is the way it needs to be and uh, and so you see all of that going on there but through all of that you're seeing that jesus's brothers became part of the christian movement uh they were leaders in the christian movement they wrote letters in the christian movement uh they were uh, they were known evangelists they were married uh but they were people who were who were respected uh among early christians and we know more about james than anyone else uh but you get that idea from looking at uh at some of these letters and places they pop up in the in the writings of paul and, and others now when you take that information you go back to the gospels the stories about Jesus, something really interesting happens. Um, we learn about his family. Look with me at uh, Mark chapter 6. 
Mark chapter 6 is, uh, and you see the same thing in the book of Matthew, I think it's chapter 13. You get the most extensive list of the the family of Jesus. But in Mark chapter 6, in verse uh, 2 and 3, you get a list of the names of his brothers, and you also get a reference to his sisters. And so in Mark chapter 6 and verse 2, it says, uh, when the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and um, the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And uh, what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hand. Is this not the carpenter or the carpenter's son? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and his sisters, uh, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So when they see that Jesus is teaching profound wisdom and even doing miracles, they're offended by it because they're thinking, I mean, this is the guy who's like, we know his family. He's a carpenter. He's not, he's not some great educated rabbi. He's not a Pharisee. He doesn't, uh, he's not a scholar at the temple or anything like that. We know his brothers and his sisters. And so they don't even take him seriously, even though he's teaching incredible things and, and clearly has wisdom. They are offended by his wisdom. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's, that happens sometimes, I think. You know, uh, the prophet is not without honor except his own, his own, uh, among his own people. When Jesus, uh, the one that they, I think it's probably easier for me as a person a couple thousand years removed who didn't know him personally, who never saw him before his ministry, uh, to hear the great things Jesus has done, to be impressed by them, and to come to believe in him and, and to worship him. Um, that came fairly natural to me. People in my family did it, and that was, that was just the way that I was raised. If, however, you were never raised worshiping a man, and uh, you were never raised uh, with the, the belief that, uh, that that was even an acceptable thing to do, and you have a neighbor, and they have uh, this, uh, this 13-year-old kid, and then you see him at 14, you're watching him grow, and he's learning the trade from his dad to be a carpenter, and, and you're there for every failure for every awkward moment for everything like that it's going to be really hard for you to one day look down on that uh young man when he's about 30 and say oh the creator of the universe (laughs) like that's that's not going to come easily Uh, to say that he's my hope in my salvation to say that he's my glorious lord to say that he's my master to say that i am his bondservant to use some of the language especially that his brothers used I imagine it's hard enough for a neighbor or someone in his, his town to say that. Um, his brothers actually come to say that. And so it's, I think, understandable to an extent why it would be hard to believe. It would take a very honest heart to say, you know what? He is doing things that I cannot otherwise explain how he's doing them. Um, but he, there's a lot of controversy about the way that he is, is seen. But if you look at that list in verse 3... You get a list of, uh, of his family members. You get four brothers and at least two sisters. We don't know if there's more than that, uh, but it says that the word sisters is plural. So Jesus was at least one of seven uh, with him, four brothers, and two sisters, possibly more. Um, in the names that are given to his brothers, they're all important Jewish names. Uh, you have the name James, which if you look at that names in Greek, it is actually the name uh, Jacob. 
And our, our Bibles in English translate the name Jacob. When it's talking about New Testament guys named Jacob, it puts the word James in there. When it's talking about the Old Testament Jacob, it'll still use the word Jacob. Um, but that is just an, an interesting note about uh, the way our New Testaments do that. But So like the letter to the, to, of James, uh, it begins with James to the 12 tribes of, of the Dispersia. But if you're looking at that in Greek, it's actually Jacob to the 12 tribes which has some, some significance to it because Jacob was the father of the, the 12 sons of Israel. Uh, and so uh, he, his name is, is a profoundly important Jewish name that you wouldn't know it if you just knew it as James. But his name is Jacob. Um, and then the next one, Joseph. That's spelt uh, kind of strange here in Mark. If you look at the list in Matthew, it's Joseph. Uh, and I think that's probably, there's probably a number of ways you go about spelling it. Um, but, uh, but there you have uh, his brother uh, named Joseph. And then you have what's called Judas right there. Notice verse 3, Judas. Um, so Judas, and you see this, that's the same name as the guy who wrote the book of Jude. It's just when it comes to the book of Jude, your translators call it Jude instead of Judas. One reason they might do that is says there's another famous Judas who's kind of marred that name a little bit. Uh, when you hear Judas and you think about Jesus, you think something bad. Um, but if you're wanting to know what name that actually is, that's the name Judah from, from like the sons of Israel. Uh, so that word right there, Judas, if you're looking at uh, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, it's going to mention Judah because he comes from the tribe of Judah. That's going to be uh, the name of his brother. It's Judah. So he's named after the, 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 you know, the fourth son. Um, but it's translated as Judah if it's talking about him. Judas if it's talking about uh, Judas Iscariot. And then for the book of Jude, it's just called Jude. But it's all the same name. Uh, but the point is that the letter uh, written by Jude is probably written by this fellow right here. And then you have the name Simon, uh, also one of the, the sons of Israel. And, and so his uh, family took seriously uh, the, the Old Testament. And Jesus, by the way, his name is the same as Joshua. Um, and, and so they all are named after great historical figures in the Old Testament. Um, but with this list of names... Uh, we learn, you know, something about the number of his family and the names of his family and things like that. And, and at least two of them we run into a couple of times in the, in the later New Testament. But as you remember what we mentioned earlier, in Mark 3, there's a story about these brothers. And they seem to have a hard time uh, as they grapple with the ministry of Jesus. It wasn't just those from his town who said, we, but we've known him. He's the carpenter. His mother's Mary, and he, we know his brothers. He's, he's not some great teacher full of God-given wisdom, is he? I mean, he's, and they take offense to him. I think his brothers do the same thing because they think, I've heard you snore. You know, like, I've, I've seen you at the dinner table. Like, you don't believe that the person who does those types of very human things, and Jesus was very human. He was 100% human. And he was completely a human being. Granted, he was also God, but he was a human. Uh, and, and so they saw all of his human frailty. They saw him get sick. They saw, like, each of those things. And all of a sudden, you want them to believe these incredible things about their brother— it might be easier to believe what the religious teachers say about them. I mean, they, you've always trusted them. They are your religious spiritual guides. And, uh, and they're telling you not to trust him. And 
he can do some things that you can't explain. And you don't know how he's able to do those things. Um, but we're told explicitly that his family thought he had lost his senses in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. And then we're told explicitly in, uh, Mark cha- or in John chapter 7 and verse 5. It says, for even his brothers were not believing, uh, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Um, so if you look at what's happening earlier in Mark, uh, or in John 7, the Feast of Booths is near, and there's going to be a big feast in Jerusalem and in Judea. And it's dangerous for Jesus to go there because they're wanting to kill him. Last time he was there, that's what they wanted to do. In John 5, 18, they, they decide that's what they're going to do. And so he leaves and he goes back up into Galilee. Um, but his brothers know that he's up there, and they also know that he's acting like he's the king of the world or something. And so they say in, in, in verse uh, 3, um, leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may also see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's like, if you are what you say you are, go down there and prove it to everybody. If you are the, the great Messiah, if you are able to do all of these signs, well, don't do them and don't feed the 5,000 in a desert somewhere. Don't do it secretly at some wedding where not a lot of people know. Go to the big show. Go to Judea. Go to where the, the, the feast is, where everyone's going to be, and go prove yourself. Then the next verse in verse 5 says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So it, it seems that they're kind of challenging him uh, to go down there. And I don't know if they know how dangerous it is there. You don't know if, if there's any uh, possible threat behind this, if they know that's where they're trying to kill him. It says, go make yourself known there, big shot. Uh, if you're afraid, fine, stay up here. But if you really are the Messiah, you shouldn't be afraid of him. You could go down there and do that. Uh, and so looking through this, there's, there's probably a couple of, of uh, ways you could read what some of their intentions are. But the point is that his brothers themselves are don't believe in what he is doing. They are like so many others that you run into in John who uh, see Jesus and they have to come up with some other explanation of it. In fact, you'll see, if you uh, just look down at verse uh, 12 of chapter 7, it says, and there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. If you look at verse 40 of chapter 7, says, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ isn't going to come from Galilee, is he? And you look, and like these verses are showing you that a lot of people have heard and a lot of people have seen, and there's like a thousand different views that people are taking on him. Some think he's a good man. Some think he leads people astray. Some people think maybe he's a prophet. Some people think he's the Christ, but others reject that, saying he's from Galilee. And, and you have all of this, and his brothers seem to be in one of those groups that is rejecting who he is. So, what happened from Jesus being... During his earthly ministry, uh, even doing signs and things, and his brothers not believing, his brothers not accepting it, his brothers challenging him in it, to what we started off by seeing them calling him the glorious Lord, and them saying that he is their master, and then becoming leaders in the early movement of followers. How did that switch happen? 
We're not actually given a story about it. Uh, You just see those details, and you have to kind of think and consider what could have led to a change like that. Um, It makes me wonder, like with his brothers not believing him, it makes me wonder a little bit, did they believe Mary? Uh, I mean, had they heard about the story of his birth? Um, Would that have made it easier to believe if if they believed in the virgin birth? If they did believe in the virgin birth, would it have been that big of a step? To believe that he was the Messiah? I mean, that, that doesn't happen to anyone, you know? And, and so it makes you wonder, what all are they doubting? Um, did, with the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, did Mary tell them about that? Did she come home talking about that? What did they think? Did they believe or did they not believe it? Uh, did they think he really was doing these things? There's, there's a bunch of questions I don't know the answer to. But I do know at some point, they came to believe after his death that he still is alive that he is with God, that he is coming again, that he is their glorious Lord, that he is the one through whom they can receive mercy, and he is the one through whom they will receive salvation, and they worshiped him because of that. The only thing I know of that could have made that transition happen is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, in this list that Paul gives of early witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Beginning of verse 3, Paul's going to describe the basis of the gospel that he's preaching and a list of uh, witnesses that can support the claims that he's going to make. In verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared, uh, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then notice verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The reference to appearing to James, I think might be significant in explaining how we go from not believing during his life through his crucifixion to becoming great leaders in the early movement and uh, ultimately giving uh, their lives for him and, and, and being faithful to him and considering him their Lord. I think the victory over death and the resurrection may be part of it because there could be rumors about what happened when he was a child that maybe are hard to believe. Uh, there may be uh, some rumors about some things he did at a wedding feast or some things he did out in the desert with feeding people and some of these, some of these signs that, that are going on that they're hearing about. But when you actually see the one who was crucified alive again, gloriously raised, not just back in his uh, body that he had, but also you see his glorious resurrection body and you know that that is the one who you have spent your life not believing there has to be a moment of profound uh, uh, understanding or repentance that comes when you see that you have, you, you've been a fool up to this point, and now you can see it for yourself. And uh, then after this, we begin to see them become followers of Jesus. We see them become leaders in the movement. 
So when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, this list uh, has several interesting fact, uh, features to it. One of them is the fact that he mentions the 500, and then he adds that note, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a way of saying, so check me on this. We have hundreds of people who will verify that not only was he killed, he was raised. And you can talk to them still. Most of them are still alive to talk to. But then he mentions two really interesting people. One of them is James, and one of them is himself. Um, We know that Paul was not a believer when he saw the resurrected Jesus. And we can assume the same thing about James as well. That James was not a believer until he saw the resurrected Jesus. Most of the other ones, you get the impression, they believed during the earthly ministry of Jesus, and then perhaps they were crushed at his resurrection, but then their, their belief revived through the resurrection. But with James and with Paul, you have a resurrection to people who did not otherwise believe, and it changed their lives radically from that point forward. Um, did he appear to any of the other brothers of Jesus? Or did James, was he able to convince them and go and tell uh, Judas or Jude, uh, you know, what happened? And that's how Jude became, we, we don't have those stories. I, I wish we did. That'd be, fasc- that'd be fascinating. But we do know that the family life of Jesus wasn't always perfect. But when you talk about the power of the resurrection, uh, it changed everything. It changed, like, you can, you can give another lesson about just all of the different ways that the resurrection has changed uh, so much of the New Testament, so much of what we believe, so much of the world as a whole. But one thing it seems to have changed is even the family uh, of Jesus himself. Uh, his personal family was transformed through the resurrection, and they became followers of his movement as well. Um, And to me, I think that's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, So we will continue our series uh, next week looking at family. We're going to look at marriage. Um, But for this first week, uh, I wanted to look a little bit at the the resurrection of Jesus and how that influenced his family here on on Sunday night. Uh, But I hope that you'll be able to to come uh, to the series as we continue to do it. And as we draw this lesson to a close, uh, if there's anyone here who would like to put your faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus and to become a follower of his, to be baptized uh, into his death and burial and resurrection and live for him from this point forward, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.